Well, Ezekiel 1, this vision of the cataphim, what are we to make of this? It all seems so complicated and so, so difficult as to what's really going on. And I, I'm going to try and uh, help us to see it in a, in a somewhat more uh, simple way. Now, where he has this vision, chapter 1, uh, verse, verse, uh, verse 1, as he sits by the, the river of Kibar in Babylon with the captives. The people of Judah have been taken to captivity and there they were sitting by the rivers of Babylon. Now, this was quite early on in their captivity. Uh, verse 2, the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. Now, you know the psalm, of course, that by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. And those that carried us away captive mocked them and asked them to sing one of the temple songs of Zion. But how could we sing the song of the Lord, one of the temple songs, in a Gentile land. And so there they were, sitting by the rivers of Babylon, feeling rejected by God, moaning about their sins, feeling that really their hope was cut off, and that God had punished them, and God was some sort of distant from them. And in a sense, we can all identify with that, that by the rivers of Babylon, in some sense there, we also sat down and wept. When we remember our own sin, when we feel that God, in that sense, it, it, it exists, I don't think any of us... Uh, doubt that he exists but that he is somehow far from us and we blame ourselves for that and we don't understand how God operates later on in Ezekiel we, we read of how the people sort of complained that well aren't we suffering for the sake of other people's sins etc so there they were in this depressed state feeling that God was far away from them and then there is this huge vision that over above them those people sitting there by the rivers of Babylon there is this huge vision of cherubim and this uh, image of, of God himself as it seems to me over the whole thing these huge wheels full of eyes uh, turning around a huge picture of massive activity clearly relating to, to the angels and I think the simple message was without trying to as it were interpret every single part of the vision you know what do the wings mean what does this mean what, what, what do the wheels mean, etc. Just looking at it uh, from a distance. The simple picture was, you who are sitting there feeling that God is so far from you, you know, over your heads, there is this huge angelic system operating. God is active. God is at work. And God is a God near at hand and not afar off. And so it is with us in those moments and whole periods of our lives where we, we feel that God is, but that somehow he is not active, that we are alone in that sense. And yet, as I have often said, the whole message of particularly the prophets is that man is not alone, and that in fact God's activity is so strong all around us, hovering over us, waiting for us to become part of it. Now, God had said that they were to be there for 70 years, and then they were to go back. And unfortunately, when it actually came to going back, you remember Cyrus makes the decree that they can go back, the majority of them chose to stay sitting there in Babylon, because they did not stay mourning by the rivers of Babylon, weeping as they remembered Zion. No, they actually got on quite well in Babylon. And in fact, Esther, the book of Esther, has for me a sad ending. 
in that it ends with the Jews very popular, everyone giving them presents, and they're all seen as, you know, top blokes kind of thing. And uh, archaeologically, the, the evidence is that the Jews became bankers, they became senior in, in the government. I mean, Daniel is a biblical example of that. And uh, they actually did very well for themselves. And so when the command comes to go back to the land, well, actually, as we know from Ezra and Nehemiah, very few of them wanted to go back. It was tragic. And, of course, this all speaks, uh, all this whole thing about returning from captivity, this is all picked up in the New Testament and applied to us, that we are to flee from Babylon, as they were told, to get out of the place and to go back to the land. We are told to exit from this world through the waters of baptism, and to start our journey to, to God's kingdom. And that restoration, that return, that entering into a new covenant with God, this is all language that's applied to us. If we have a look at verse 20, Whithersoever the Spirit was to go, they went. It's talking about the, uh, the wheels. Thither was the spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up beside them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When these went, when those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. When those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up beside them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And over the head of them there is this firmament and uh, the vision of God himself. So then these wheels are on the earth, but they are lifted up, and they travel around. And they go wherever the Spirit takes them. Uh, it emphasises that these wheels and the Spirit are one and the same, that they, they go wherever they are told to go. Later on in Ezekiel, we see that Ezekiel actually becomes part of this vision. He is lifted up by a lock of his head, and he is transported from Babylon back to the uh, city of Jerusalem, and then he's picked up by a lock of his head and taken again by the angels, by, by, by these cherubim, back to, to, to the captives, and he's sort of shuttled backwards and forwards. And I think that was to show them that, okay, you are in Babylon, but above you there is this huge angelic system which can return you to the land if you play a part in it, if you are prepared to, to be like the wheels going wherever the Spirit took them. You know, the Spirit took them into captivity, that's where they went. The Spirit wanted to take them back, they should have gone back. And Ezekiel personally, the fact he could flit in between uh, Babylon and Jerusalem transported by this huge cherubim vision. This I think was the example to the people that you also have been taken here into captivity by this huge angelic system and when the time is right, if you follow the leading of the spirit, you will go back you will be taken back uh, if you're looking for the references about Ezekiel being lifted up by the Spirit and by a lock of his head and all that. It's Ezekiel 8 verse 3 and 11 verse 1. So he became part of this huge system of cherubim. And if you look at Ezekiel 10, you, you have another vision. This time, uh, it's an explanation of how the cherubim system ended up in Babylon, because it's a vision of the cherubim in Jerusalem, and how because of the sin of the temple, the sin of Judah, uh, the whole thing lifted up and God's presence uh, departed and the, the cherubim system moved away. 
And uh, verse 2, he spake unto the man clothed in linen, and said, Go in between the whirling wheels, even under the cherub, and fill both your hands with coals of fire from between the cherub, and scatter them over the city. Now this man clothed in linen, I think, is Ezekiel. He is asked to put forth his hand into the cherubim system and to become part of it and to distribute uh, the fire that, that, that is in there. Then in verse 8, There appeared in the cherubim the form of a man's hand under their wings. Why is there that weird little detail? Why silhouetted, as I understand it, um, in this vision is there the form of a man's hand underneath their wings. Well, Ezekiel has just been told to put his hand uh, into, the, into the vision under the wing of the cherubim and to take some coals of fire out from right between them. So then, I think that's to show that this whole system, this massive system of angelic power, can have you and me as part of it. If you put forth your hand... You know, this is great big heavenly vision. And then there's this odd thing that sticks out like a, I won't say a sore thumb, but it, it, it sticks out very obviously. That this great heavenly vision, and what's that man's hand doing under the wings? When Ezekiel has just been told to put his hand in there under the wings. It's as if God is saying, you give me your hand, and you will become part of this huge system, and I will work with you, and you shall work with me. In that sense, God is, uh, Abraham Heschel used to say, God is in need of man. Not in one sense he isn't, but uh, he wants to work with us. So as the cherubim were lifted up, this is chapter 11, 22 to 24, so Ezekiel was lifted up. And he was an example to them, how they should see their own passing into captivity as having been taken there by the cherubim. And also they could come back from captivity if they followed where this, the Spirit led them. And so in our captivities, in the dumb situations that we find ourselves in, in life, we have been led there. That actually God works through human sin and failure. He doesn't turn away in disgust when somebody sins. He works with them. And I think we need to get that clear, because it's easy to say, oh, sin separates between us and God. And of course it does in one sense. But that does not mean that God turns away in disgust. That would be a wrong understanding of sin as a separation between God and man. God works through human failure. And he took them to Babylon. It wasn't that he just said, okay, I've had enough with you guys. Babylon can get on and beat you people up. No, he actually, God's hand, this huge cherubim system, was in all that. Now, how many times have we seen that through somebody's failure, it may be typically marrying someone who is an unbeliever, somebody marries out, and somebody comes in as a result of that, into Christ. Um, now, that doesn't justify the, uh, the failure or, or whatever, but God has a way of working through human failure. And that's a very comforting thing. And it's a huge system that is above our heads. And we tend to think that God occasionally works with me, and not very strongly, not very dramatically, a few little things click into place, 
And yes, okay, I can see God's hand there. But the whole picture of this is that there's a huge, awesome, cherubim system above us. You might remember that time when Elisha uh, has his servant with him and they come to Dothan and there's this great army of their enemies there and the servant starts to get scared and um, Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And uh, his eyes are opened and he sees this huge load of chariots of angels prancing around all over the place. And the wonderful thing is that Elisha was so convinced they were there. He didn't say, oh, show me them, just remind me, Lord, that they're there. He knew they were there. So strongly, he didn't even have to see them. He said, okay, Lord, but just let, let my servant see them for a bit, so that he stops, uh, stops whining kind of thing. Um, and that's amazing, that really, all around us, there is this huge angelic presence. Just to go off topic somewhat, there's a lot of things that Paul writes, as Peter says, are pretty hard to get your head around. Well, he doesn't say that, but, uh, you, you know, something of that effect. And uh, 1 Corinthians 11, when he's talking in this very difficult passage about head coverings, he says you should do this because of the angels. And I wonder if, uh, seeing that I must have read probably 20 different interpretations of that, and none of them satisfy me at all, um, and this one doesn't either really, but um, I wonder if that's a reference simply to the fact that there at the memorial meeting, which I think was the context of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is saying, you know, the room, the hall, is full of angels, your angels. And uh, you should do this because of their presence. That's just to chew on. Uh, but the point is, there is this huge angelic system. Man is not alone, and God is not only occasionally active. Even though we only might perceive it now and again, there is a huge amount of stuff going on in the background right now. God could just say, well, this is what I want to happen, and so it shall happen. But I think he, he works uh, through some kind of mechanism. He, you know, he, he could just state that something is to happen, and it happens. Uh, but I think he chooses to work through some kind of mechanism. We have a picture um, of the court of heaven deciding whether... Um, a king should, should die at Ramoth Gilead. And you remember the angels all come before God, come up with their different, um, different ideas. And then one angel says, um, I will put a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And God says, that's it. That's the, the one I choose. Okay, off you go. And he goes from heaven off and, and does his thing. So God could just have you know, smitten somebody dead. But it, instead he chooses to work through discussion with angels, through considering different ways of doing things, and then he says, right, that's it. Let's do that. And I think that that demonstrates that God is so passionate about us that it really, we really mean so much to him. So, if there is hovering over us this huge angelic system, we have got to move with them. We've got to go the way that we are led. And of course you say, well I don't know how I'm being led. I, you know, how do I know? How to decide this question or that question? I don't know. What's the, what's the right choice to make in this, that or the other? All I can say is by our exposure to God's word, which is of course a form in which his spirit operates, 
by our prayerfulness, by our active interaction with the body of Jesus, by our reflection, you know, the unexamined life isn't worth living, so some smart person said, and that's very true, but by our, our reflection and our self-examination, I dare to say, after 27 years, yes, 27 years baptised, I dare to say that over the years, you do find the direction easier. You do start to sense, this is the way in which I must go, and not that way. Now, we've read there in Ezekiel 1 verse 20, that wherever the Spirit went, there the wheels went. And they emphasises how they absolutely went uh, wherever they were led. Now, this is quoted in the New Testament, in the Septuagint form of it, is quoted in Galatians 5, verse 25. And suddenly this all becomes very relevant to us. Galatians 5, 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us walk straightly, is I think the uh, literal translation. In the same way as the cherubim had straight feet and the wheels went wherever the Spirit went, we also are to do the same thing. We are to see ourselves as part of that cherubim vision and to go in the way in which we are led. Now, this is why when you look at the, back to Ezekiel 1, you look at the, the vision, you think, well, who are these cherubim? They have these four faces, and it's been observed that this is all very similar to the encampment of the children of Israel in the wilderness, that they each had a standard, they were divided um, up, the uh, tribes camped uh, on the four sides around the, the uh, presence of God in the middle of them, and they each had a standard. And it's been suggested, and I don't think you can prove this directly from the Bible, that this is Jewish tradition, um, that these standards fitted in with the, uh, the face of the uh, lion, man, ox, and, and eagle that, that you've got here for the cherubim. So who are these cherubim? Well, they were the angels. That's clear. But they were intended to be also God's people. So then God had taken them into captivity, and there they were, and Ezekiel is reminding them that they are going to return if they walk in step with the Spirit. But this huge angel system is going to return. Now Ezra perceived this when he prays, when they, they start to make their journey, uh, he prays in Ezra 8 verse 21 that God would give them a right way from Babylon to Zion. Remember, they're going on their long journey, and he prays before they leave, give us a right way. And that's the same word translated straight. When you read in Ezekiel 1 verse 7, their feet were straight feet, or right feet. Verse 23. Under the firmament were their wings straight. So then, he asked for that straight way. He clearly was alluding to the cherubim vision. He understood this, I think, the way that uh, we're trying to understand it. And he's saying that, you know, we want to walk in that way from Babylon back to, to Jerusalem. Give us a straight way. Give us straight feet. 
because we want to, we're going to be following the, uh, the, the cherubim angels above us. And you remember when he's offered, uh, him and Nehemiah, they're, they're offered uh, help. Uh, Ezra is uh, offered, um, sorry, Ezra. Uh, Ezra is, is offered an army, a, a sort of protection from the king, and he says, no, we don't need it. This is how strongly he believed that they were surrounded by angels. There they were, carrying all that valuable uh, gold and silverware and stuff that had been taken into captivity in Babylon, taking it back now to the temple. And the king says, well, don't you like uh, want some protection? Don't you want me to send my guys to look after you? Don't you want a kind of an army to go with you to protect you? And he says, thanks, but no thanks. We got God on our side. Because he knew that there was this huge angelic system over above him. You get another prophecy about the the restoration from Babylon in Jeremiah 31 verse 9. And it's prophesied that they would walk in a straight way. It's the same word for the the straight feet of the cherubim. By the rivers of waters. And I, I wonder if, you know, this again is an allusion to the cherubim vision being given by the river of of Kibar. Interestingly, when Ezra, in verse 21 of Ezra, asks for this straight way, he asks for for this, sitting by the river Ahava, sitting by a river of Babylon, he asks that they will be given a straight way. Same word, the straight feet of the cherubim, the vision that was seen also by a river of Babylon. So then, God wanted them to go back, but most of them chose not to. And this is, I think, the tragedy of so much of God's work with his people, Israel, and with us also, that he has painstakingly created so many potentials for us, and yet we don't rise up to it. Maybe you work with someone who would come to Christ if you spoke to them. Maybe you live with someone who would, but you think, no, 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 no. She's uh, a Muslim. He, he, no, he's just a materialist. He, no, no, he's, he's not that sort of guy. He's involved in something else. He, no, no, no. But, you know, there's huge potentials there, and not just in, in terms of preaching. There's all kinds of things that God has set up for us to do. We've all been given talents, and we may think, no, but... I, I am not such a gifted person. I, I am just an ordinary guy who's uh, not particularly talented. And I'm just existing here, and I hope by grace I'll be in the kingdom. But um, it all seems a little bit abstract and a little bit a, a huge distance between us and the reality of God. But I don't think so. I don't think so. God is really passionate about you and me. And there is this huge, huge angelic system over our heads. So then let's not be like Israel who sort of said well actually we're fine now here in in Babylon we're the second generation um, third generation now we're just fine see you later. They could have been a great army for God. In Ezekiel 37 um, there's a, a noise of a great shaking or an earthquake the spirit comes from four places and they stand up on their feet a great army. All those terms are out of here in Ezekiel 1. 
Israel stood up as a great army, that's Ezekiel 37 verse 10. We're told here in Ezekiel 124 that the sound of the cherubim was as the sound of a great army. After Ezekiel has seen the vision, he hears a great noise like the noise of an earthquake in Ezekiel 3 verse 12. And this is the very same phrase, the two words, that you've got in Ezekiel 37 verse 7, when there is the noise of a shaking as the bones come together. The noise of a shaking. Ezekiel 3 verse 12, the noise of an earthquake. The, the reference in Ezekiel 37 is 37 verse 7. And then in 37 verse 9, the spirit comes from four places. Well, you know, there are four cherubim. Point is, that revival of Israel that is there in Ezekiel 37 could have happened at the time when they were in Babylon and they could have gone back, come together as a great army. They could have been part of this cherubim system. But they chose to remain. They chose to stay with the safe and with the familiar, with the patterns of life and behavior that they were used to. Just like we are so strongly tempted to, because we are so conservative. We are so conservative by nature. Give me what I know. Don't make me do anything new. Don't break my pattern. That, that's us, sadly. And yet the whole idea of being led by the Spirit is that we are led, led, led. Not round in circles, not just the same old scene, but God has a very specific intention for each one of us. And so Ezekiel opens with this chapter 1 vision and he concludes with the vision of the, uh, the temple at the end. And the very last words of Ezekiel are that the, the city of Jerusalem will then be called, The Lord is there, Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. So this vision of the cherubim, the angels, that departed from Jerusalem in chapter 10, and it appears in Babylon in chapter 1, is going to come back. The glory of the Lord was seen by Ezekiel coming in from the east gate, and if you notice the whole uh, commands about building the temple, they're told all the time, this is a, in the last chapters of Ezekiel, to put cherubim everywhere. There was a motif, a theme, if you like, of cherubim, to be everywhere, on the walls, everywhere, all over the place. There was to be cherubim here, cherubim there. Why? Quite simply, the cherubim that he saw there in Ezekiel 1, the cherubim that left the temple in chapter 10 and went, stood over them in Babylon in chapter 1, that cherubim vision was to come back to the, to the, uh, to the temple. And yet I take that whole prophecy at the end of Ezekiel there to be conditional, because he says in, in 43, uh, I think verse 12, um, that this shall happen if, if you are obedient. So I take all that in Ezekiel as um, command, sorry, 43 verse 11, yes, um, that this would come true if they be ashamed of all that they have done. So I, I take the whole thing from 40 to 48 to be command rather than prediction. In other words, this was a, a vision that he saw of what could have been. But they had to go back, along with the cherubim, and actually rebuild it, and actually do it. 
And when they did go back, and you know, they started to build it, but then they all ran off and started building their own farmhouses, and Haggai complains that you people have put beautiful ceilings on your houses, but the house of God sits in ruins. Um, they didn't really do it. And when they finally sort of finished dedicating it, some people shouted for joy because it was like the dedication party, and other people wept. And I wondered if those who wept were those who thought of Ezekiel's prophecy, his vision, of what the temple should and could have been. And they saw the little thing that had been cobbled together, and they, they wept because of the lost potential. And this is a tragic thing. It must be tragic for God, as he sees billions, really, I, I suppose, of potentials wasted. We have all wasted a lot of our potential. We have all really, really got in the way of what God wanted to do with us. And yet he doesn't give up in tears, as it were, with us and walk away. He keeps on. So no matter how much you feel you've messed up, no matter how much you feel that these have been wasted years or wasted time in, in your life in one way or another, or partly wasted, I think probably that's what we all feel, that I, I mean completely wasted, but I, I could have done this, that or the other. Okay, but every day... It's the first day of the rest of your life. Now, I like that. Every day is the first day of the rest of your life. We, in the power of the Spirit, with a desire to love God, can rise up in faith, and we have a huge, huge system of angels over and above us who are so eager on God's behalf to work with you and me.